Good evening. That was weak. Good evening. Good to see all of you tonight as we come together for worship. We've got a special treat tonight. Uh, and we're going to have some young folks come up here and sing for us. But before, as they're coming, why don't y'all greet one another in the name of the Lord, okay?
big meeting downstairs today to prepare for the musical that uh, the children will present on May the 17th. So go ahead and put that on your calendar, and we'll look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, Ryan has uh, volunteered to stay at the piano, and we thank him for that. And we're going to sing... You know, I have my songs up there, Aaron. Oh, there they are. Okay, let's stand together and sing.
Amen? Let's sing about that. come to you tonight. We thank you. We love you because you first loved us. Lord, we just thank you that you blessed us in so many ways. And one of those is allowing us to be a part of the family of God. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came, that he was born, and that he ministered, that he died on a cross, and then he rose again. We just thank you, Lord, that as he arose, we will one day arise it's just like he did. Father, I just ask that you would bless the rest of our time tonight. Bless Jack as he comes and bless him, Lord. Give him the words to speak that we need to hear. We thank you and we love you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I bet you didn't see this coming, I'm usually right down there. You did. Are you awake? Are you, are you, you did see this. And you remember that you arranged it. That's even better. Don't be calling us at 2 o'clock tomorrow morning when you're wide awake and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. We'll all be asleep. Indeed. Indeed. So, let's pray. Father, we do come before you tonight, God. We give you all glory and all praise. And we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fall upon this room and fall upon each and every one of us. And Lord, open our eyes and our hearts and our ears so that we can hear what you have for us this evening. We praise you and we bless you. And most importantly, God, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. You know, over these last few days, last past days, we have been spending time in the third book of the Bible, Leviticus. It has perhaps been the first time that some of us have read the book. And for many others, even though you have read it or we have read it, is it is daunting, is it not, in its uh, volume and in its detail. Did I mention detail? And, uh, you know, we're not alone in our opinions of uh, Leviticus. But my prayer is that after these days of study, I have to remember to slow down because that's sort of the feedback I keep getting. You know, you seem to bring a nice message, but you talk awfully fast. I suggested they listen quicker, which didn't go over so well. Um, but my prayer is that we have, uh, that we, uh, after we've had these days of study, that we have started to see 
that in the book of Leviticus there is great value in its chapters. We do not live, praise the Lord, in a world of uh, sacrifices and many, many laws. You and I do not know about sacrifices of animals or food or actual shedding of their blood. We do not concern ourselves with fire and high priests who approach God in our place. We have been amazed at the detail of what the Lord required of his people as he gave them this manual for worship and for holiness. And we have breathed, at least in my case, a not very silent sigh of relief that we do not have to do all these rituals and sacrifices. And we wonder how those who are still living with so many rules, even if they don't involve animal sacrifices, how they manage the works and the legalistic things that they do. And what I would like to draw our attention to tonight in our few moments together here is the reason why we do not have to do all that Leviticus required of the Israelites. And I would like us to conclude this recent trip that we've just made through the book of Leviticus by looking at what it all pointed to and at the person who redeemed us from the laws, from the law by his death and his sacrifice. I would like us to look afresh and to realize and to be in awe of the fact that everything we enjoy today is because of the blood of Jesus and nothing but the blood of Jesus. So let us turn in our Bibles, if you will, to the book of Hebrews and to chapter 9 and about verse 6. I'm using the ESV translation not to be annoying, but because of the way it treats certain words and phrases. And so as we do it, it's a longer reading, so you may remain seated at the end of a long day or you may stand as you feel comfortable. In verse 6, we begin. These preparations... Having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, 
since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. These verses are why our pastor has asked us to study all of the Bible and the book of Leviticus, because now you see these verses that we just read in light of the book of Leviticus. Now you see how important it is to know the Old Testament as read with the eye of a believer in Jesus Christ as we see all the foreshadowings of Christ. Indeed, one cannot appreciate as well the New Testament without an awareness of the Old. And that is clearly true of reading Hebrews 9 and at a later time Hebrews 10 with the lens, if you will, of Leviticus. How amazing is our Father as he gives us his complete word and his whole counsel. How blessed are we as believers to live now with the perspective of 2,000 plus years on this side of the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of our blessed Savior. How completely, how completely can we see the plan that God had from all eternity for the redemption of us whom whom He knew from the foundation of the world? Our Heavenly Father, who, excuse me, who first loved us, before we loved him, who indeed knitted us in our mother's womb, and we see his son, our Jesus, who has gone from this earth to sit at the right hand of the Father where he lives and intercedes ever for us, having prepared a place for us in our Father's house where we will live for all eternity in his glorious presence. How amazing our God is that He loves us enough to send His Son that we may have eternal life, forgiven not only of our sins, but also of the punishment due us in eternal fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This section of Hebrews continues to explain how the new covenant in Jesus Christ is superior to the old covenant. This passage focuses on two main advantages of this arrangement. That Christ serves in a better temple and that Christ offers a superior sacrifice. The physical temple and its implements were meant to be symbols of Christ's true place of service in heaven. And unlike the limited sacrifices of animals that we have been studying and looking at in Leviticus these past days, Jesus' single death was completely able to completely save us from sin. 
As we look at these verses again, we see that verses 1 through 10 recall for us the background that we have been reading. And in verse 10, it says that it all deals only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. And that word Reformation comes from a Greek word that means restoring what is out of line. Restoring what is out of line. And all things are set straight in Christ. The Reformation is the new covenant in Christ and its application. I don't know about you, but I love that word now. We always heard the word about the Reformation in that period of time. But when I look at Reformation, I realize that's what I always need is to be set straight in Christ. And as we walk in our walk and as we spend our time yearning and hungering and thirsting after God, that should always be, at least for me, God set me straight. Reform me, Lord. Make me where I need to be. And that straightening comes because of the next phrase. In the ESV it says this, But when Christ appeared. I really like the New King James Version because it says, But Christ came. It reminds, me, it reminds me of how in Genesis it says, in the beginning, God, but Christ came. And if we will glom on to that and realize whatever it is that we're doing, whatever it is we're going through, that, but it is, it is true for us that Christ has come. We could stop right there, brothers and sisters, for the rest of our time together. Do we get who showed up? Do we understand Who arrived with us? I would ask you to turn with me for a moment to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 19, where it says this about him, about Jesus Christ. I'll give you a second to find Colossians. It's in the New Testament. It's a joke. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is he who showed up to save you. And to save me. And it is he who Leviticus in all these past days was foreshadowing in all the scriptures dealing with sacrifice that you and I have been studying in Sunday worship and in our small groups. Think Think about that. This is the Christ. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The image that is before us right here with these verses is the Day of Atonement. It's called Yom Kippur. And in the immediate context of 9.13, the author refers to the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been deified, who defiled rather, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. And that's referring us, you don't need to look, but it refers us to Numbers 19 to describe the practice of sprinkling the unclean person with water of cleansing that's made from the sacrifice of the red heifer, which was in perfect health. And that red heifer had never been harnessed. And she was slain and burned, and her ashes were gathered and kept for ceremonial cleansing. In sharp contrast, though, the author states, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus did what no red heifer sacrifice could ever do. It has already been established in Hebrews that Christ is the great high priest. It has already been established that his priesthood is permanent because he continues forever. And under the old covenant, the animal sacrifice is cleansed from external defilement. But they could not touch the inner defilement. They could take care of the outer, but they could not touch the inner defilement. The heart of man, you see, of you and of me, is defiled. It's deceitful. And it's desperately wicked. But Christ was the undefiled, sinless Lamb of God. And therefore, as priest and victim, He would make the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sin once and for all. Jesus is also the victim of the sacrifice. And in the passage before us, Jesus the high priest is offering Himself up on the altar to atone for sins. And he did this through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, never to need to be repeated, once and for all. And this passage also tells us something about the nature of his sacrifice. Jesus was without blemish. And in verse 14, when it says purify or perfect our conscience, when it refers to conscience, it's referring to salvation. And the sacrifice of the Old Testament did not remove those guilty conscience of those who were sacrificing. It didn't provide them with the full forgiveness of their sins. It was only symbolic of something else that would do that in the future. And that something else was Christ. And we live in that. And why was our conscience cleared? And why were we saved? It says in verse 14 that that happened, that we are to serve the living God. An expansion of that phrase might be that we were, our conscience was cleared to qualify us to worship before God in a way that brings Him pleasure. Verses 15 to 17 says, Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So the question then in this whole will conversation, and that's one of the reasons I like this translation, is some of your translations may say covenant, and covenant means the same thing as will. But he's talking about it, and and who receives then that eternal inheritance? 
those who are called. Called by whom? Called by God. In other words, God's last will and testament, what we would call a will, is not left to chance. God not only wrote the will, and God not only put it in force by the death of His own Son, and He not only raised His Son to be the executor of that will, and He not only spread the inheritance of eternal life backward for thousands of years and forward for thousands of years, but He is also today calling people out of darkness and, into, and death and unbelief and into His marvelous light to become fellow heirs of that will with His Son. I mean, if that doesn't get you excited, ask the guy next to you to grab your wrist. In other words, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Verses 18 to 22, as, as, we, as we finish with these verses, don't get excited when a preacher says that he's finishing, he's just winding up. Um, Therefore, not even the first covenant... I'm going to take a drink of water because Alex did this morning, so I know it's okay. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no remission. And the shedding of the blood in the covenant ratification ceremony at Sinai also illustrates the necessity of Christ's death. In verse 18, death is replaced by blood. The term blood is used intentionally, it's felt, to emphasize the violent aspect of Christ's sacrificial death. Water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop used at the Passover in Egypt. This same formula was utilized in the inaugural ceremonies for the Mosaic Covenant and for the New Covenant. And the shedding of blood refers to death and remission, meaning forgiveness is the emphatic last word in this section. You know, it has been said that the uh, most profitable study of Leviticus is that which yields truth in the understanding of sin, in the understanding of guilt, of substitutionary death, and atonement. By focusing on features which are not explained elsewhere, in Old Testament Scripture. The sacrificial features of Leviticus point to their ultimate one-time fulfillment in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And so this week, over these last two weeks really, probably seems like a month, but really it's only been a couple of weeks, we have completed this time through in Leviticus. <clears throat> and because of that, we have drawn a deeper understanding of Jesus' complete, once and for all, atonement for us. An atonement that we will observe, believe it or not, six weeks from today, on Easter. So what does this all mean to us? Us on this first evening of March 2020 in Cookville, Tennessee. How do we react to our precious Savior in a renewed way? 
Because this has given us a renewed understanding. What is our renewed response to him? Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from and, con- and even conscious in our bodies washed with pure water. How do we draw near? I would ask. As I have prepared for tonight's time together, I've been reflecting on the presence of God in our lives and what our response to him must be. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, if we don't need a recommitment to our conversion, to our being born again, not to be born again, because that's not necessary, but to focus on our having been born again so that we can commit anew to live as a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. A a renewal of our commitment and response to who we are in Christ. You know, it's been said that the gospel, the definition of the gospel is that we have adoption through propitiation, through that substitutionary sacrifice. Commentators and scholars have made some excellent points in this conversation. The definition of the gospel is that the wrath of God has been turned away from sinners because of the death of Christ, that we might be reconciled to God and brought into his family. See, that reconciliation is very key. When you look at Hebrews, rather, when you look at Leviticus, you hear a lot about a covering, a covering by, by the sacrifice. But the, and that, the Greek word for that means to cover over. I'm sorry, the Hebrew word for that means to cover over. The Greek word for that in the New Testament means to reconcile. And it's a huge difference. Our sins are not only being atoned for and the sacrifice being handled, but we are also being reconciled to God. And so when we look at that, what we see is, is that we, are, we, the, we have that, that we might be reconciled to God and brought into his family. You see, the rejection of Jesus Christ is sometimes an intellectual problem and sometimes an ignorance problem. But if I may dovetail into Alex's sermon this morning, it is always a surrender problem. It's always a surrender problem. We don't easily submit ourselves to any authority, let alone one who claims dominion over every aspect of our lives. It's not 9 to 11 on a Sunday morning. It's not Sunday evening. It's not the men's breakfast. It's not just Wednesday night. It's all the time. But you see, Jesus has the right to be Lord over our lives. And he has that right, and he can claim lordship of our lives for four reasons. Number one, he made us. So by right of creation, he can claim that right. Number two, he saved us. So by right of redemption, he can claim that right to be Lord over our lives. Number three, he has preserved us. He keeps us. And that certainly gives him the right to be Lord over our lives. And with respect to ordination and appointment, God has exalted Christ and placed all things in subjection under his feet. And for those four reasons alone, he has every right to claim what we in response to him should give, which is entire lordship over our lives. Christ's rule then is not some arbitrary authority by virtue of a military coup or or a political nepotism. Christ's claim of lordship is well-founded. Remember, too, his lordship was also very costly. 
Jesus Christ didn't establish his authority by taking prisoners or executing judgment or shedding the blood of his enemies. He is Lord. He is Lord because he shed his own blood. Because he bore God's judgment. And because he set the captives free. He purchased our bodies and souls with a commodity far more precious than stocks and bonds or retirement or entitlements that we may have. He redeemed our lives by loving us enough to lose his own. So you see that conversion is essential to the gospel. The world needs to learn and we frequently need to be reminded that Christianity is not about refurbishing a few morals here or helping you find your own unique spiritual journey there or or simply trying to get you to agree to a few theological statements. We need to be converted. God does not want to be on your list. He doesn't want to be the top of your list. He wants to be the only one on your list. And he calls us to that. And the Bible talks about conversion in many different ways. Conversion means turning from vain things to serve the living God. We were reminded this morning, what vain things are we speaking of? It means repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Conversion is described as being born again. As being resurrected with Christ into a new life. As being a new creation as regeneration, and as putting off old clothes and putting on new clothes. Conversion, my brothers and sisters, means a change of ownership. It means a change of ownership from slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness. And a change of spiritual status from death to life eternal. And a change, hallelujah, from darkness to light. And we can summarize the change in conversion by pointing to two realities that happen if we have genuine repentance. The dying away of the old self. That's known as mortification. That's known as killing the old self. We talked about that also this morning. That's of mortification. But then it's also the coming of life to the new. That vivification, if you will, where we get that new life And dying to our old self entails three things. And I would just say this to us to remind ourselves. You know, you may have gotten saved. Maybe you don't even remember when you got saved. Maybe you always grew up in the church. Maybe it was something that happened somewhere along the line. You've always known that that had it. Maybe you've renewed that. Maybe to you it was just like a blinding bolt. I've known people who were at 1 o'clock not saved and at 105 saved. Maybe you were like me where... It was a long, slow, arguing, dragged out process that God was faithful to, to continue to meet me where I was. But whatever it was, we know that we have to be sorry for our sins and that we see the foolishness of our ways and regret our choices. And I would submit to you that that's something that goes on all the time. Perhaps not as much as we grow in the Lord. But still something for us to step by and look. I would, sec- I would say that number two, that we hate our sin more and more. As we are converted, as we grow in the Lord, we hate our sin more and more. You know, it's one thing to feel bad following the repercussions from some action. I always analogize getting stopped by a cop. I'm really not sorry that I was driving fast as much as I'm sorry that he saw me driving fast. And so we, we have our little negotiation and I either get or don't get 
uh, the, the ticket when I was visiting here 15 months ago, 18 months ago. I didn't realize you all took so seriously your school zones. And uh, as I was driving by Prescott, I made the delightful acquaintance of one of the fine men, men who defend our city. And we had a long chat, and he let me go. I'm fairly certain now with, a, with a, a, a Tennessee license and a Tennessee license plate that he probably wouldn't be that generous. But under no circumstance was I sorry that I was driving fast then as much as I was sorry that I got caught until the more I thought about it. And when I went back to California for six months, I was the best driver in a school zone you've ever seen. And all those people behind me were leaning on their horn all upset. But the point is, is that if we're going to have true conversion from being a sinner, then we have to be very serious about our sin. And that involves hating our sin more and more. It's another thing to actually hate our sin and hate it more each day, not just because of the bad consequences it brings us, but because it offends your living God. We were standing in the fellowship hall, I don't know, a few months ago, and Pastor Scott walked up, and one of the ladies says, oh, I didn't know you were there. He said, well, God was here before I was here. Do we live like that? Do we live that God is here and God is around? You know, it's enough to grit our teeth and do the right thing because we fear the repercussions of doing otherwise. We must see the vileness of sin and detest it. And thirdly, we need to run away from sin. Too often we think that regretting a past mistake or saying we're sorry for some offense is all that repentance requires. But true repentance involves a change, putting our old ways behind us and walking in a different direction. The word for repentance in, in Hebrew, I believe, is teshuva, which means to turn around, to walk away from. James 4, 7, and 8 tells us, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Don't forget that first part. We love that resist the devil, which we're going to talk about. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. The first part is submit yourselves, therefore, to God. From then comes resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Submit. Surrender. We are frequently content with mere talk-talk about how sorry we are, talk about how rotten we are, talk about how bad our sins are. It's all well and good. But the last time I checked, we are called to put to death the deeds of the body, not to merely complain about them. And as we grow in the Lord, what does that growth look like if, in fact, it's not a deeper realization of what we're talking about? The second aspect of we have not really repented if we are only stirred. If we're only stirred but no change comes, we have not really repented. The second aspect of true repentance or conversion is the coming to life of the new self. Notice that dying away of the old self involves things like regret and hatred, while coming to life of the new self is described with words like joy and, and delight. As I said on Wednesday evening, the joy of the Lord is our Strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Do you know that God in Zephaniah says that God sings over you? And when we look at that, well, coming to life of the new self is described with words like joy and delight. Conversion is not simply a new way of living, though it leads to that. Conversion is a new way of thinking and feeling. And it means we hold Christ in a new way so that he looks clear where he had been confusing. That he looks brilliant where he had been bland. 
and supremely glorious where he had been just another regular, slightly above average guy. Having our eyes opened to Christ's divine and supernatural light means more than just a twinge of conscience or being moved with pity at Jesus' suffering. As Jonathan Edwards says, true converting grace imparts a real sense of the excellency of God and Jesus Christ and of the work of redemption and of the ways and works of God as revealed in the gospel. When the Spirit of God brings us to life in Christ, He operates on the mind, the will, and the affections. It's a package deal. And we will not only think differently and act differently, we also feel differently so that we can truly say, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. In short, conversion brings newness. It brings new life. It brings new direction. It brings new inclination. It brings new affection. The old has gone and the new has come. And in conversion, the Spirit of God gives us a new awareness of sin. It gives us a new interest in the Word of God. It gives us a new passion for holiness, a new desire for prayer, and a new sense of the majesty of God. This means we obey, not because we are slaves bound to our Master's will, but because Praise God, we have been set free and are now at liberty to do what we ought. And what we do should look so different from the world. And if it doesn't look different from the world, I ask all of us to step back and say, why doesn't it? And what should that look like? At times, people may be able to be scared, you know, into temporary law keeping, but true conversion goes deeper and it affects the heart. And by the way, it's always a process. You're not going to wake up Tuesday morning and say, well, I got that. This is always going to be an ongoing thing, but it affects the heart, making us happy to walk in God's ways and do what is good. But what is truly good? For most people, good deeds are simply those that help people or society in some way. So we figure, well, we have no shortage of good deeds. After all, society recycles. It builds houses with habitat for humanity. We give to the various charities. We take our kids on vacations. But God's standard is higher. And God's standard is deeper. And good deeds, the Bible tells us, are those that only arise out of faith, that conform to God's law, and are done for the glory of God. That doesn't mean that we can't be thankful for the morality and kindness we see in non-Christians. Certainly most people do nice things for others. But truly good deeds must do more than help people and spring from more than good intentions. Truly good deeds, you see, are done in God's strength through faith in Christ They conform to God's revealed will and they aim to make much of God and not of us or the ones we serve. One of the biggest things I think we have in the church today is we talk about us and we talk about works and we do that first. Not here, praise God. But that we must always point to the cross. We must always point to the cross. Which, by the way, is empty. And so is the tomb. Because he sits at the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes for us, having done the completed work. The word of God has got to be our standard of goodness. It's got to be not nice thoughts, not pleasant smiles. We can be thankful for kindness instead of meanness. But true goodness goes deeper into the heart of God and higher up to God than mere moralism. So as I said at the beginning, I think we need a recommitment to our conversion, to our being born again. 
not to be born again, but to focus on our having been born again so that we can commit anew to live as a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, sometimes we get this idea where we think, well, you know, I did my time in VBS. You know, I passed out my share of bulletins. Well, you know, I, didn't, I don't really need to go and serve at this or serve at that. I'm weary. I'm tired. I've done all of my time. And pretty soon, but I got news. If you're here, he's got, he's got use for you. If you're here, he has need for you, even if it's just being prayer warrior. Even if it's just, that's not just, but it is just praying. My prayer for all of us, guys, is that we never lose our wonder that he chose us. We just never lose our wonder that he chose us and that we will never forget that there is only one thing that got us here. And that is simply and forever, nothing but the blood of Jesus. So, we could do one of two things. We could pray and get out. Or we could just stop a second. And I would just ask you, that if you desire this evening to let God make stronger the fire that is in us, if you desire this evening for him to restore us even more completely to the joy of our salvation, if you desire to return even more strongly than ever to our first love, would you stand with me right where you are? And let me pray for and with you. Lord, we don't know how to do anything other than be available. It's not our skill. It's our availability. We know, God, that you don't call the equipped, that you indeed equip the called. And so, Father, here are all of these men and women, these wonderful, friendly, loving, kind lovers of the Lord God who serve you, who are sitting here on a Sunday night thirsty and desiring so much to know you better. And they bring themselves as a human sacrifice, as Paul says, to you, God. Would you, Father, in your kindness, just fall upon us, Holy Spirit. Baptize us afresh with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, fill us up to overflowing with your grace. And Father God, please give us a renewal in you that we may be joyful, over the fact that we belong to you, that we are children of God, and that you have loved us with an everlasting love. We give you all glory this evening, God. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. I know. <laughs> <laughs>